Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave? Wake up, America, wake up! The political division in the country undeniably deep right now. The big question on a lot of people's minds, can Americans come together and heal? I'm Van Jones, and this is Uncommon Ground. Back in 2013, I got my first show on cable TV. Big deal to me. I was one of four co-hosts on a CNN show called Crossfire. And it was rebooting this kind of classic debate across the aisle type program. You have, you know, progressives on one side, Republicans on the other side, and we're actually directly debate each other, fight about stuff. Tonight on Crossfire. We've been debating and fighting about what to do about Syria, but now we're going to call a ceasefire. You know, I think, and I want to come back to a point that I made, I think that I have to admit that you guys have been right about something. You guys have been out there, you in particular, been out there for two years saying we got to do something about Syria. I hate your solution. I don't like the war. But you were pointing to the right problem. And I think a lot of people on the left were ducking it Mm. and we weren't dealing with it. And I think that what my lesson out of this is, even when we don't agree, we got to listen to each other more than we do. Well, and I appreciate that. And and I I will return a favor and say, look, I, I don't agree with your solutions either, but at least you've been consistent. I think a lot of Democrats and liberals have talked about President Obama's foreign policy as somehow morally superior to President Bush's. And you ho- you hold Obama to the same standard as you hold President Bush. Well, and that's 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 that says a lot about your credibility. It's hard to have those shows nowadays. And basically now most of the shows is just, you know, all progressives or all conservatives, you know, talking about each other, not talking to each other. But back then, you know, the good old days, 2013, um, we actually did sit down across the table and have the conversation. And across the table from me, Somebody who was quite literally cast to be my foil was Essie Cup. She's a conservative political commentator. She's a columnist. Uh, she's a host on the CNN show now called Unfiltered. And Essie Cup is somebody I respect because I would call her a movement conservative. She's not just a talking head for the Republican Party, whatever talking points they came up with this week. She's the opposite of that. She is consistent in her you know, free market, free trade, strong military, small government beliefs, even when her party goes off in different weird directions, she just has been consistent about what she believes. Now, that said, she doesn't fit into a lot of the Republican stereotypes or stereotypes we might have about Republicans. She actually grew up in a blue state. Uh, She went to liberal schools. She's not religious at all. And she's actually to the left on some social issues. And she really is not animated by all these culture wars that are going on around race and all that kind of stuff. Now, she's important, I think, in the national conversation because we often lump all the conservatives together. Uh, Like they're all the same. They all think the same. S.E. Cup proves those assumptions are wrong. So I want to give her a chance to kind of explain her take on conservative politics to the Uncommon Ground community. You know, I was on a team for a long time. And it's not just that the team has changed the goals and sort of put on a costume that I don't want to wear. It's that I I watched a lot of people I love and respect and admire go right over to that team and put the costume on. And I, I'm 
that's been disappointing. And listen, they're disappointed in me. It's not, I'm not in the white hat and they're in the black hat and I'm so much better. They are disappointed in me. They think I sold out. Now, what I want you to check for in this conversation, if you will, is Essie has a point of view on the Democratic Party. She actually thinks the Democratic Party is in pretty good standing. I think a lot of Democrats don't feel that way. So it's really interesting to hear a Republican talk about Democrats in the way that she does. Also, she's at the effect of a lot of this social media stuff, all the negativity. She's got some tricks for trying to manage that uh, in her own life. So we're going to talk about policy and politics and the human dimension behind all that with my friend Essie Cup right after this. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. So hello, Essie Cup, my first ever show I ever had. You were my co-host, CNN Crossfire. Good days, good times. I know. Who knew? At the time, we thought everything was terrible. Now it's like that was that was Sesame Street. That was a uh, Mister Rogers totally. show. But you know, the, the very the very very first time I ever saw you was when you were hosting a show for Glenn Beck. So I mean, you've you've uh, you've written this this rocket ship for quite a while in terms of all of the ups, downs, good and bad of American politics and, and the conservative movement and its, its many uh, iterations. I think the uncommon ground community that I'm trying to build, sad as I am to admit this, is pro- still probably has more liberals and progressives than conservatives. I want my uh, listeners of this community to have more insight into the appeal of the conservative cause at its best. You know, some progressives would say, well, I don't like Trump, but I, I didn't like McCain. I didn't like W. I don't like Republicans at all. And no good people could be Republicans. And I'm like, oh, contraire. Uh, I know tons and tons, including you. Can you just start off by telling my listeners what appealed to you as a young person about the conservative cause? Why did you become a conservative? Uh, well, thank you. And I will answer your question. But first, let me just... Let me just challenge your first premise, because I don't know. Can you think of another time in our lifetimes where you could have identified a large group 
of Republicans who voted for a Democratic president for the first time in their lives. I think there are more Republicans looking for common ground than you mm. think. Um, I okay. believe you that your, you know, that your community is made up of more progressives and liberals than than conservatives. But there is, for the first time in my memory, an identifiable voting block of Republicans who can be won by Democrats. That is, I guess, thanks to Trump. But but um, I think this is a real opportunity, which is why I think it's so great that you're doing this, because I think you actually do have conservative ears um, in ways you might not have in the past. Um to 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 your second part, I I didn't become a conservative because I hated liberals. I wouldn't have any friends if that were the case. I grew up with liberals. You know, I I, I grew up in Massachusetts. I went to liberal schools. I moved to New York City. I worked in you know quote unquote liberal media. I became a conservative. Uh, I was drawn to it because I thought it was really empowering for lots of people you know, for fiscal policy and foreign policy, it just made the most sense. It wasn't the culture wars. It wasn't even issues like abortion uh, and, and sort of social stuff. As, as you know, I'm pretty far to the left on a, a lot of issues from capital punishment to gay rights. It was really self-reliance, small government, a distrust of government, which I thought was like a healthy distrust at the time. Now it's become a fetish. I just want to just get personal for a second. You know, uh, we're both good, good intellectuals, but we also are kids from somewhere doing the best that we can. You know, you don't talk like most conservatives and you never have. It's not like, you know, just suddenly in the Trump era, you started, you know, having your own point of view. <laughs> You've always <laughs> part of what, made, what makes you interesting is you always had your own point of view about things, these things. Um, what, what does it feel like these days just as a as a working mom, as somebody who you know, believes in a party that, you know, is, is kind of letting you down. I mean, just what, what, what's it like being SC Cup at this stage of the game? Well, I mean, without going off on too much of a tangent, I, you know, I've spoken honestly recently about anxiety and dealing with mental health. And a lot of that is because the world feels upside down to me. You know, I was on a team for a long time. And it's not just that the team has changed the goals and sort of put on a costume that I don't want to wear. It's that I, I watched a lot of people I love and respect and admire go right over to that team and put the costume on. And I, I'm, that's been disappointing. And listen, they're disappointed in me. It's not, I'm not in the white hat and they're in the black hat and I'm so much better. They are disappointed in me. They think I sold out, right? I'm to the left, I guess. Um, <laughs> Cause y'all pay my bills now, but, um, no, it just, it's disorienting. It's disappointing. And it did lead to this sort of anxiety and inability to make sense of the news, the world, the country, politics, as I once knew it, it's been tough. Cause not only do I have to take all that in, like we all are, but then I have to output it for television, right. For our jobs and make sense of it somehow. Um, it's been hard. When you, you talk about um, being on a team, I mean, you were on the Republican Party's team or the conservative. I, I see you more of the movement conservative who is also a Republican fighting for the ideas, not putting people down. 
putting ideas first. I watched you, you know, engaging, trying to keep the conservative movement healthy and strong and idea centered. And that was your team. And that was your jersey. Now, a lot of those ideas have just been, it's not just they've been thrown away, it seems to me. It's just they just don't matter. And that's not what you signed up for. And um, I think you've been very courageous in talking about the emotional toll uh, that it's taken on you. And uh, you're not by yourself. No, I, there's the first, (laughs) this sounds silly now, but the first inkling I had of of this, what, what you're describing, sort of conservative relativism, cafeteria conservatism, was, you know, when, when Trump somehow convinced the party to abandon protectionism, somehow it was okay. But take that through four years and it ended with Trump supporters defending the use of an American flag to beat up a police officer at the Capitol. That is how far he took the party away from the ideas, ideas and ideals that I thought were pretty ironclad. So, yeah, I mean, the hits were constant, constant, constant. The disappointments constant. I was I was on this ride that never went where I thought it should go and where I wanted it to go. And I used to have some sense of how to how to navigate the contours of of politics within the Republican Party. I I knew who to call. I and that was all gone. I think a lot of people felt that personally. Well, who are who are my people? The problem that I see with what's going on in your party is that it's everything's up for grabs every day. And you really just don't know. You know, it's, it's law and order when it's somebody kneeling and it's not when it's somebody taking on the, uh, the, the you know, doing an insurrection in the Capitol. And I think you add that to COVID and the isolation that we went through. And, you know, a lot of people got sad and confused. That's why I feel that a part of the recovery of the country and reestablishing both these parties as, as worthy parties, there is a personal dimension to it. The, um, the inner journey toward uh, healing, toward understanding why we even decided to do this political stuff. I think all that has to be a part of the way forward. I think you're absolutely right. We have allowed ourselves, and social media certainly reaffirms this, to become avatars. We're not real people. And when you take that element out, will you remove empathy and compassion and that human component to any issue? And I think whether it's school shootings or COVID or even the debt and deficit, right? These are things that have human cost and human sacrifice attached to all of that. And We've got to start talking like real people. You know, I've had a number of moments in my television career, you've been present for some, where I've cried on camera. You have as well. It's I, I get embarrassed when that happens to me because I try to be professional. Yeah, me too. But at the same time, we are people too. And I'm tired of being ashamed of empathy and trying to sort of marginalize it. I think we need to start there And it's frankly the reason I voted for Joe Biden. You know, I'm not going to agree with him on lots. And I don't think he's doing a terrific bang up job right now. But I knew we needed to make America good again. And he is a good person. And and so starting there meant enough to me to vote for the other side. 
And I'm, I'm still happy I did. You know, I, I, I'm still a strong enough Democrat and progressive that I literally can't imagine voting for a Republican. You know, if you think about the civil rights movement that, you know, is the source of my inspiration and, and you know, where I come into this work, the, the, the idea that we weren't just fighting for black people. We were fighting to redeem the soul of a nation. That when we got done with this movement, everybody in America was going to be better. That people of all races were going to be able to stand taller. And that that was going to require an unbelievable amount of grace and mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation with people who had literally enslaved us for two centuries and were at the time beating, jailing, assassinating, and lynching us. And you, know, you look at that kind of, of, of a stand, which has literally inspired the world. And yet now the same movement will cancel somebody over a 10-year-old tweet. That's not the movement I signed up for. I feel that same disorientation. I feel that same loss. I feel that same grief. You know, what advice, what advice do you have to people who, on either side of the aisle, uh, who are trying to find our way in this very polarizing time? I mean, what, what's, what's worked for you? Talk a little bit about that stuff. Relearn how to be offended and lear- learn how to deal with being offended. I'm offended like 8,000 times a day. And yet the world still turns. I still figure out how to like, you know, get through my day. We've got to learn how to be offended and deal with that and confront that. Canceling someone and then pretending, okay, solved that, she's gone, um, really doesn't tackle hate or learning about how other people see the world and maybe even changing hearts and minds. My therapist told me, I think brilliantly, and it's really impacted me. She said, when it comes to social media and the news, because a lot of my anxiety was coming from social media and the news, you need to ask yourself why you're going on to Twitter first. Go with intentionality. Because listen, I, I would go on to Twitter because I was waiting in line for something and had two minutes. Sometimes I would go on to Twitter to get validation for something I had just said, but I never really thought about it. I just did it. Well, the algorithms are so strong that it's not giving you what you want. It's giving you what it wants to give you. And so if you are that passive in your experience, you're going to get a lot of stuff you didn't want. And that's what was happening to me. And so I thought about like going into a grocery store with a list. I don't go in with just no idea of what I need. I go in, I know what I want. I look for it and I bring it home. I go on Instagram or you know, name, name your app. I ask myself, what am I after right now? And let's make sure I only leave with that. That's been the thing that's made the biggest difference just in my day-to-day dealing with anxiety, that and therapy and, um, you know, treatment. But just in navigating our world, because my therapist says, look, you're in news. I can't tell you to just not, like, don't watch the news. So we've had to come up with some boundaries and some exercises and how I can make this experience work for me instead of the other way around. We'll be right back after this quick break. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. You mentioned that it wasn't the cultural wars that you're, you're, uh, you're, you're more of a mixed, you have a more mixed approach on some of the cultural war issues. You know, how do you define the culture war? How do you see the culture war? And, and, how, and how do you navigate that space of these kind of contested social issues? You know, the media and, and also just sort of the nature of our politics right now really relies on sort of binary division. You know, you're either mm-hmm. all this or either all that. And you're defined more by your, uh, by your enemies than you are by your friends. Both parties are looking for heretics more than they are converts. And when that's the setup, when that's the premise, well, what's going to turn voters out? What's going to get people enraged and more entrenched into their camps? Is it conversations about the debt? I wish, (laughs) Van, believe me, I wish that's what was going to get people fired up because that's what gets me fired up. But no, it's talks about critical race theory and Confederate statues and kneeling for the anthem. I think it's gross. I think it's dangerous. I think it's manipulative. But it is it is successful in doing what it's intended to do. And listen, the right is not the only, you know, Republicans are not the only party to rely on fear at times and division. But certainly, I, I think I can say with with confidence, it is all the right is offering up in this moment. The left is actually at work trying to pass, uh, you know, trillions of, of spending that they certainly can't pay for, but, 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 but still dealing with policy, <laughs> still dealing with policy and, you know, angry at Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin for holding this up. Well, the right is really o- offering up only a steady diet of culture wars. There's no, there's no more policy anymore. It's, it's Trumpism right. and culture. Right. To me, that's my my heartbreak. You know, uh, you and I have been on many platforms together in front of students, in front of millions of people on television. And, you know, we, we see the world differently, but we've always been able to find those areas where we can agree or at least respect the differences and demonstrate that we can respect the differences, that, that we can disagree about issues without uh, disrespecting each other in terms of intention and character. I find less space for that on the left as well. I mean, I I appreciate all your kind words about the progressives, but I find less space for that on the left as well. I feel like we're building a subculture more than we're building a movement. Subcultures are always trying to throw people out (laughs) and call people out. 
movements are trying to call people in and grow. And I feel I feel the pressure on the left to to expel people and to to have purity tests. I don't, and I and I and I think it's very very unhealthy for both sides. Well, I think I I either wrote this or said this not long ago, recently, that I've seen this movie before, and I was talking about Democrats trying to purge moderates from the party. I know what that looks like when purity is privileged over over principle um, and and over overgrowing that tent. And what happens is you keep. I've likened it to. Um, I don't maybe because we are of us of a same age. You'll remember you used to go to the grocery store and you could buy a can of concentrated orange juice, right? And it's this like gelatinous juice, and you'd put it in a pitcher and you'd add water. But the project now is to condense the voting block for either Republicans or or, or Democrats. I think more so on the right, so that it is one hundred percent concentrate. And that can mean it's smaller. That can mean there are fewer. That can mean, but they're reliable and they're rabid. Um, And so for my party, I mean, believe me, we don't, we don't have enough people to to win national elections. If you're only going to get this concentrated group and you're actively asking people to leave, like actively asking Liz Cheney to please leave the party, Adam Kinzinger, please Mm -hmm. leave the party. Showing people the door who have been reliable conservatives is Needless to say, Van, for me, incredibly disorienting. And so I, I do see inklings of this on the left as well. And that kind of purity project results in cultism. And it certainly results in, in fewer voters. Right, right. Well, I mean, you and I were literally uh, hired to uh, debate with each other. And, and yet I think we were able to do that on, on Crossfire the, the year plus that we had that show together. Uh, in a way that didn't leave people feeling like you had to like figure out which super nasty toxic concentrate you wanted to to sample. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, and yet, even the media system uh, seems to be less amenable. Not just the political system, but even the media system. What's the role of the media system, social media, those kind of things, from your point of view? Well, I remember sitting down with you in like 2012 or 2013. And I had just come from another debate show on MSNBC. And so I, you know, I had done this. And I said, here's the thing, Van, like, the audience wants to know mom and dad can have a fight without, but they're not getting divorced. And now it feels like the divorce is the point. If you're not getting Mm. divorced, then the stakes somehow don't feel high enough. And I hated participating in those kinds of shows. And when I when I had my own show at CNN, I know you tried to do this too. I refused to do the yelling and screaming and inviting people on only to embarrass them, only to gotcha them, and not because I actually wanted to hear from them. And what I think, I mean, part of this is, is voters and consumers. We give you what you want. If you wanted more C-SPAN, we would act like C-SPAN. You don't. But it's not impossible. I love debate shows. I don't. I think we should bring back debate shows, but have them in the way that's actually informative and shows what you and I are talking about, that there are more of us than you'd think. There are more people who not just are able to find common ground, but are looking for it, are interested in finding common ground to get to solutions. Um, it doesn't seem like those are the conversations a lot of folks in cable news want to have right now. Are there any issues or solutions that you see 
that you know might bring people together or leaders or books or anything that when you're looking around and you think, you know what, we could work on that together, uh, you know, across party lines, or we could at least address that thing, or we could try something. Yeah. I mean, we'll survive this, but I think until we learn how to disincentivize these purity tests and extremism, we're rewarding political inaction just to keep issues alive, right? Like not solving immigration, not solving gun control, because keeping it broken means you can run on it and fundraise on it. Until we figure out how to disincentivize all that stuff, I'm just not sure there's a system, a foundation for people like you and me to build on top of. There's a lot of people like you and me. I'm not worried about that. There's more of us than there are of them. But if you don't have a political foundation and infrastructure and a media foundation and infrastructure that's that's interested in supporting more of us instead of rewarding more of them, there's nowhere for us to build, to start laying down the bricks. Um, I don't have the answer to that, but I do take solace in the knowledge that there's a lot of willingness there. There are willing actors. I just don't feel like we have the space, but that might not always be the case. So we're, we're there, we're ready when that space is finally provided. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, everything that exists was created by somebody. And I just invite the Uncommon Ground community and everybody who's listening to this conversation you know, sometimes you just got to start new stuff. Right. And so I think a certain kind of entrepreneurship, a certain kind of, of experimentation. And adventure. Improvisation yeah. and adventure. Yeah. I think that's the big call is we're in this epic contest and we're either going to have a new enlightenment yeah. or a new dark ages. And right now the people on the, on the side of the dark ages, they may not even know they're, that's where they yeah. are. But if, if your ideas require you to blame somebody else and to be mad at somebody else, you are on the path to creating a new dark ages. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, that's really uh, what I hope people can take away from this conversation. I hope they can take it away from your example as well as a principled conservative in a time where principles don't seem to exist in, uh, on either side. Well, I love this project. And let me just end by, you know, positing a question. If you're wondering what side of this you're on, the dark ages or or progress, you can ask yourself, okay, if you had a magic wand, would you make your opposition change or pay? Would you punish them or would you want them to change where they were going? If you want them to pay, I think you're in that dark ages, uh, you know, pathway. If you want if you, if you hope that they can change, this is the kind of thing that we need to do, have these kinds of conversations. And they start with people you might not agree with. And so I'm really glad you're doing this. Well, I appreciate you. And I hope that you'll come back again and again. And um, I'm so, so proud to know you. For sure. Thanks. We see the beauty of hope. That spirit is so beautiful. Those who become American citizens love this country even more. And that's why the Statue of Liberty lifts her lamp to welcome them to the Golden Door.
You know, Essie and I have always had our differences, but from the very beginning, we've been able to keep it civil. And ironically, I think both of us now are feeling a little bit like outsiders or outliers in our own parties now. And that's become a place of kind of uncommon ground for both of us. Something Essie Cup said really stood out to me. She said, right now it feels like politics is more about going after the heretics rather than the converts. And both sides, I think, have been increasingly guilty of this more negative style. And let me just make two points about, you know, the fact of political differences. I didn't say divisions. First of all, I think that we should want our parties to be big tent parties where lots of different kind of people can get in there and learn together and work together and help each other. I don't trust parties that become these ultra pure factions. For one thing, it's hard to win. (laughs) Numbers matter. It is politics. But also, you know, I think diversity matters. And not just racial diversity and and gender diversity, viewpoint diversity, philosophical diversity. Um, Even if you sign on to the Democratic program, you might have a different way of trying to get there. Having that mix really matters because the best ideas make sense to lots of people in lots of places. If it only makes sense to you and your friends in your dorm room, it may not be the best idea. And the number two, there are always going to be people in the other party. And I'm worried now that we're getting to the place where some people think the country would be better off if you just didn't have any Republicans or if you just didn't have any Democrats. It's almost like an exterminationist view of the other side. The other side has to be, you know, conquered, converted, or you know, literally run out the country because you just can't live with the people who vote differently. And that is very, very dangerous. Can we just acknowledge we actually need each other? Democrats need Republicans. Republicans need Democrats. Nobody wants to say that, but it is true. Uh, you don't want me as a left wing progressive Democrat making all the decisions because I'm just going to say, hey, Feed the babies. (laughs) You know, uh, let's do all we can to get people out of poverty. I need somebody on the conservative side saying, hold on a second, how much does that cost? Who's going to pay for it? How's this going to work? That push and that pull is how you wind up with good values and good policy and things that can actually work. And frankly, I think the people on the conservative side need people like me pushing and asking questions about the least of these, about the environment, et cetera to bring the best out of them. And so I think that we have to get back to a place where we just acknowledge that none of our parties are perfect, that there are people who disagree with us who are good. And I've frankly never seen a bird fly with only a left wing, uh, not even in Berkeley, California. I've never seen it. I've never seen a bird fly with only a right wing, not even in Mississippi. I've never seen it. It really takes both sides. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't extreme groups on either side you got to deal with. But fundamentally, when I look at an SC cup, I see somebody that I can admire. And even if I vote against her or argue against her on national television, I think the country's better with her in it. These big challenges that we've got are not going away. We still don't have the right answers to most of them, which means we need that thesis maybe on the left an idea on the left and then an antithesis, an opposing idea on the right. And then maybe we get to a synthesis where we get the best of both views 
that we could all come together on. That's how it's supposed to work. And if we're going to avoid going into some new, scary, dark ages and instead get to some new enlightenment, that's what it's going to take. I'm Van Jones, and this is Uncommon Ground. I'm taking some time off to recharge, but we'll be back with more inspiration, more solutions, and great guests in February. I look forward to getting back to the Uncommon Ground community in a few weeks. Take care. Uncommon Ground with Van Jones is an Amazon original production. It's produced by Magic Labs Media and Wonder Media Network. Our producers are Teddy Alexander, Maisha Dyson, Grace Lynch, Adesua Agbanile, Sundus Hassan Noli, and Lindsay Cradlewell. Our managing producers are Lauren D. and Eliza Mills. Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and Morgan Jones. Our theme music was composed by The Grand Mess. Publicity for the show is led by Alice Zoe, Andy Lichtenfeld, Didier Moraes, Chantel Muentes, and Sam Petherbridge. Special thanks to Jana Carter, Taylor Williamson, Seven McDonald, Drew Schwindeman, Eric Carter, Trevor McNeil, Carrie McCarran, Joe McMillan, Steph Walkneen, Vanessa Rebert, Ty Jacobson, Marshall Louie, and Chris Jackman. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Nancy's love story could have been ripped right out of the pages of one of her own novels. She was a romance mystery writer who happens to be married to a chef. But... This story didn't end with a happily ever after. When I stepped into the kitchen, I could see that Chef Brophy was on the ground, and I heard somebody say, call 911. As writers, we'd written our share of murder mysteries. So when suspicion turned to Dan's wife, Nancy, we weren't that surprised. The first person they look at would be the spouse. We understand that's usually the way they do it. But we began to wonder... Had Nancy gotten so wrapped up in her own novels... There are murders in all of the books. ...that she was playing them out in real life? You can listen to Happily Never After, Dan and Nancy, early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.